Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Antioch. It's great to be with you. It is Super Sunday in the American football calendar, but in the church calendar, it is the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. Epiphany is the season in which the church commemorates the glory of God as revealed in the Incarnation and the good news that God's love and compassion are now understood as being for all people, not just the nation of Israel. Since Christmas, we've been following the lectionary and preaching from one of one or more of the four scriptures read that week throughout much of the global church. Many or most weeks, the default choice for the sermon topic is that of the gospel reading. Those of you who know me likely won't be surprised that I'm going to depart from that norm. I hope to spend a few minutes in today's psalm, which is the 147th, and then the rest of our time together in the reading from Isaiah 40. So it would be great if you could find both of those passages in your Bible or on your Bible app. For those who don't know me, perhaps a short introduction is in order, and I would hope that after we're all done, you'll be able to see why I chose to select these two Old Testament passages for focusing my remarks. My name is Rick Gerhardt, and my family and I have been a part of Antioch since before its official beginning more than 14 years ago. I am not on staff, but am and have long been privileged to serve you as one of the elders here. I have two graduate degrees, one in biology and one in philosophy theology. Specifically, my philosophy theology degree is in Christian apologetics, which involves the reasoned formulation and winsome presentation of a rational defense of the Christian world and life view. My biology degree is in the ecology of birds of prey. One of my areas of expertise is the ecology and conservation of golden eagles, and my day job sometimes entails capturing adult golden eagles or climbing or repelling into their cliff nests. So, as our Isaiah passage ends by telling us that those who wait upon the Lord shall mount up with wings like eagles, I couldn't very well pass the opportunity to preach on this chapter. I will not, however, spend much, if any, of our time parsing out that particular verse. But both the 147th Psalm and Isaiah chapter 40 offer a good mix of scientific and theological themes, and hence my desire to delve into them today. Each offers a good springboard for launching a much-needed defense of the Bible and Christian belief in light of the secular naturalism that has so infected our culture and the church. Each will allow us to keep with the epiphany theme of the glory of God as revealed in Christ. So let's begin by taking a look at Psalm 147. This is a beautiful psalm, and I wish we could take a deep dive on it, but it also covers a whole lot of ground so much so that it is quite difficult even to come up with a thesis statement that does it justice. My study Bible titles it, He Heals the Brokenhearted, a phrase that comes from verse 3. But that thought is limited to that one verse out of 20 total, and the psalmist spends as many words on the Lord's creation and naming of the stars, and quite a few more on his provision of rain and snow, and on his care for and feeding of the beasts and the birds. Indeed, this psalm is quite often and rightly referred to as one of the many creation psalms. I will offer you what I take to be the main thesis of it after we've had a look at a few verses. Whenever I'm looking for insights into one of the psalms, one of my go-to expositors is the great British preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Among other things, Spurgeon has this to say about the 147th psalm. It is a psalm of the city and the field, and of the first and second creation. 
I love that, and I want to unpack the second half of that characterization and relate it to the way we talk about the good news here at Antioch. We live in what could be called the first creation. It is, on the one hand, a fallen creation, one broken by humanity's pride and sin, and one in which suffering and evil seem to be the rule rather than the exception. On the other hand, this first creation is rightly understood as the creation that is being redeemed. At his incarnation, death, and resurrection, the Lord Jesus set into motion his eternal reign on earth, his redemption of this creation. Colossians 1.20 refers to God's overarching purpose as the reconciliation of all things, and we at Antioch have adopted this phrase as our concise summary of the whole gospel. In Ephesians 1.10, it is referred to as the uniting of all things in Christ. And we understand this as involving the healing and restoration of all the relationships broken at the fall, that between humankind and God, between us and ourselves, between us and other humans, and between humanity and all the rest of creation. But in the final chapters of the Bible, we find reference to a second creation, the new creation. And at times it is helpful to focus on the separate nature of this new creation. It is, after all, one in which there will be no evil or suffering, Indeed, there is no reasonable theodicy, no successful defense of the goodness and power of God, apart from the recognition that the Bible teaches that one day there will be just such a new creation, one in which evil and suffering are completely vanquished and no longer exist. At the same time, it would be wrong to believe that the new creation is entirely separate from the present one. It is assuredly this creation that in Christ is being redeemed, and the continuum between the present heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth of Revelation 21.1 is described in language just like that used to describe each of us, once fallen and apart from God, but now, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creations, if we are in Christ. When Spurgeon describes the 147th Psalm as a psalm of the first and second creation, I take him to be saying this, Through the close juxtaposition in this psalm of God's healing the brokenhearted, in verse 3, and his determining the number of the stars in verse 4, the psalmist is making it clear that God's work of healing is not only for the new creation, when the Lord's kingdom reign will be realized in full, but also for the present creation being redeemed, despite the as yet ongoing presence in it of suffering and evil. And I would add, because we are called as his disciples to partner with Christ in his grand purpose of the reconciliation of all things, we dare not sit about waiting for the new creation, but instead must be actively involved as he calls, leads, and empowers us in the healing of broken relationships and the righting of injustices in the present creation, the one that he is redeeming. So let's look at three verses of this 147th Psalm before moving on to the Isaiah passage. The subject of this Psalm is the Lord, which translates the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is the true and living God who, as is revealed to us by the incarnation and teaching of Jesus, is a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 3 through 5 say this about him. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond wisdom. Regarding verse 4, Spurgeon writes, What a change is here from the preceding verse. Read the two without a break and feel the full force of the contrast. From stars to size is a deep descent. From worlds to wounds is a distance which only infinite compassion can bridge. Let me encourage you to spend some time this week in this, the 147th Psalm. But for now, let me give you what I take to be its overarching theme. 
And that is that despite the magnificence, power, and wisdom associated with God in his creation and superintendence of the entire universe, he nonetheless cares about the smallest, seemingly most insignificant aspects of that universe, including the well-being of what Jesus would later refer to as the least of these. But for our purposes this morning, there's a corollary or spin-off thought that I want to carry forward, and that is this. At least part of the reason we are unable to fully trust the Lord to exert his power, wisdom, and compassion in the day-to-day -day aspects of our own lives is because we have lost a robust understanding of his power, wisdom, and compassion as regards his creation and superintendence of the entire universe. We live in a culture and time in which great scientific achievement has led to the point where we give far too much credence to the philosophical and theological pronouncements of secular scientists. For some in the church today, this takes the form of accepting the fallacious idea that the increased understanding of the way the physical world works somehow diminishes the requirement that there be a creator and designer behind it all. For others, it means avoiding any interest in the creation, fearing somehow that scientific discoveries will one day really and truly prove the non-existence of God. The reality, sisters and brothers, is that a biblically informed Christian worldview is the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live. The reality is that modern science was birthed from within a Christian worldview and that science depends upon assumptions that come directly from a theistic worldview and that are at odds with an atheistic one. Let me pause here and take the time to support this last claim with a couple of quotes. The first comes from the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Modern science was conceived and born and flourished in the matrix of Christian theism. Only liberal doses of self-deception and doublethink, I believe, will permit it to flourish in the context of Darwinian naturalism. And non-Christian thinkers have come to the same conclusion. This quote comes from Paul Davies, an agnostic British physicist and professor at Arizona State University. Science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. To continue, the reality is that all of the greatest recent scientific discoveries powerfully support, rather than undermine, the claims of the Bible and Christianity. We'll look in a few minutes at two of these discoveries, but for now I want to make this point. The church in our day suffers from a great lack of faith, that is, a lack of confidence in the truth of our faith. As a result, the church is afraid to allow its brightest young people to pursue careers in science. Moreover, the church is unable to worship Christ as both Redeemer and Creator, as Psalm 147, Isaiah 40, and so much of Scripture commands us to do. Now let's turn our attention to Isaiah. Isaiah had a long career as a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, following the division that occurred in Israel after Solomon's reign. While Isaiah's ministry can be divided into three distinct phases, the situation in Judah was tumultuous and dark throughout his life and tenure. Nonetheless, and even though much of his task was to sternly warn God's people of the consequences of their rejection of the Lord, a great deal of Isaiah is filled with hope and with promises of eventual restoration. Chapter 40, where we are this Sunday, is the beginning of the second of the three phases of Isaiah's ministry, in which he is primarily com com comforting the people of Judah, who have been conquered by Babylon, seen their temple and homes destroyed, their army defeated, and they and their surviving loved ones carried into exile far from their homes. Let's read the passage together, Isaiah 40, starting at verse 21. Do you not know, 
Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. God who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. As we saw in the 147th Psalm, this passage celebrates the might and wisdom of the one who created the entire vast universe and juxtaposes that with a compassionate attentiveness by which he knows and cares about the seemingly most insignificant and short-lived aspects of that creation. As in the psalm, Isaiah here implores his audience to place their trust in this all-wise, all-powerful creator. And as in Psalm 147, Isaiah 40 appeals in establishing the unfathomable bigness of God to his role as the creator and sustainer of the starry heavens. The psalmist and Isaiah both acknowledged that the number of stars was astonishingly great, but there are only a few thousand stars visible to the naked human eye, and that number would have seemed huge to them. I can only imagine how much more amazed by their awesome God they would be to find, as astronomers have today, that our own Milky Way galaxy contains something like 100 trillion stars, and that there are something like 100 billion other galaxies besides our own. Remarkably, however, some of the loudest scientific voices, and those most frequently picked up by the media, proclaim that the findings of modern science somehow disprove the existence of this magnificent God. Either by ignoring completely or by spinning the latest discoveries, these brash voices promote grand conclusions that are exactly opposite the truths to which those discoveries actually lead. The late astronomer Carl Sagan repeatedly pronounced on his very popular television show that the universe is all there is or was or ever will be. In his book Cosmos, which was made into a movie starring Jodie Foster, the thesis, which was repeated ad nauseum, was that our little planet and its inhabitants are insignificant and without any special purpose, and that there must be millions of other in inhabited planets in the vastness of space. This idea of segments has become known as the mediocrity principle. In my own field of biology, the loudest claim is that of evolutionary theorist Richard Dawkins, who writes that biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance, by which he means a false appearance, of having been designed for a purpose. This is a reprisal of Francis Crick's dictum that biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So let me take the next few minutes to set the record straight by discussing the two most important discoveries in astronomy and physics, and arguably in all of science, of the last 100 years. These two discoveries strongly support the earliest claims of the Bible 
and two of the time-honored deductive proofs for the existence of God. Whereas science uses inductive and abductive reasoning, both of which offer only probable conclusions, philosophy uses deductive reasoning, which yields proven conclusions. One such deductive argument that has held sway throughout all of the history of Western thought is the cosmological argument, which reasons from the existence of the universe to the conclusion of a personal cause or creator as the necessary explanation for that universe. Those that have tried to refute this argument have argued against the premise that the universe had a beginning, claiming instead that perhaps the universe itself is past eternal. The only century in which this latter claim gained any traction was the 19th century, in which Newtonian physics models seemed to suggest that the stars were motionless and eternal. It was during that century that Darwin's theory of biological evolution was proposed, and one of its essential assumptions was that the universe is eternal and that natural selection therefore had a nearly infinite amount of time to work its wonders. But all that changed in the 20th century, as Einstein's equations of general relativity pointed to a dynamic universe, and subsequent evidences demonstrated that the universe is expanding and thus had a beginning a finite time ago. Most of the efforts among physicists and astronomers to refute this discovery of a beginning to the universe were based in their recognition that such a beginning supported the claims of the Bible, allowed God back into science, and provided insufficient time for evolution to be a viable explanation for life's diversity. But by the end of the century, general relativity and the so-called Big Bang model of the universe's beginning had become the most rigorously tested and supported ideas in all of physics. According to science historian Frederick Burnham, this discovery made the idea that God created the universe, quote, a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last hundred years. Though the theological implications were obvious to many of the scientists involved, and many astronomers and physicists of that time and since have given their lives to Christ, many fundamentalists and other evangelicals rejected this God-honoring discovery. This is because they held and hold to a particular interpretation of the Genesis creation account known as young earth creationism. This idea is not a part of historical Christianity, is not found in any church creeds, and is not, as its proponents claim, what the Bible says. Rather, it arose only in the 17th century, became dogma in a small portion of the English-speaking church only in the 1960s, and is itself a complex interpretive scheme that depends upon a number of incorrect decisions. So the single most important discovery of the last 100 years powerfully supports the Bible's claim of the creation of the universe out of nothing by God and provides further proof of the cosmological argument for God's existence. It also rules out Darwinian, Neo-Darwinian, or any other naturalistic evolutionary explanation for the diversity of living things on Earth. Incidentally, our Isaiah passage includes a very interesting sentence. Verse 22 says that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. One of the three fundamental tenets of all Big Bang models is the continual expansion of the universe. As such, it is at least noteworthy that Isaiah and a total of five Old Testament authors in 11 separate passages refer to God's creation of the stars not in terms of their having been placed or set in the heavens, but in terms of their having been stretched out. In some of these, including our verse 22, the verb form indicates that this stretching aspect of God's creative act is ongoing. 
For many Christians who take seriously the notion that God's word and works both provide reliable revelation of his existence, power, and wisdom, the stretching of the heavens passages offer an eerily accurate description of the universe as understood by 21st century astronomers and physicists. The other great astronomical discovery of the last hundred years offers powerful support for the design argument for God's existence. For the past several decades, astronomers, physicists, and cosmologists have been amassing a list of characteristics of the universe as a whole and a list of features of our more local environment, galaxy cluster, galaxy, solar system, and such, that are finely tuned to allow for advanced life on Earth. Collectively, these lists of design parameters lead to what has been dubbed the anthropic principle, the idea that human beings represent the goal of the universe. Cosmologist Edward Harrison wrote, here is the cosmological proof of the existence of God, the design argument of William Paley, updated and refurbished. Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest minds of our lifetimes, wrote, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Arno Penzias, who shares a Nobel Prize in physics, declared, Astronomy leads to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say supernatural, plan. Keep the words of the psalmist and of Isaiah in mind as I discuss a couple of these design characteristics. One of the universal parameters that is exquisitely designed to allow for life on Earth is the cosmic mass density, which is fine-tuned to better than one part in 10 to the 60th power. The number of stars in the universe is a direct result of this mass density parameter. So, a universe capable of supporting life, even if only on this one planet, requires the vast number of stars that astronomers detect. This refutes Sagan's mediocrity principle, as well as his claim that if the rest of the universe is uninhabited, it would constitute a great waste of space. Of course, there are many disciples of Sagan, astrobiologists and astronomers involved in the search for extraterrestrials, a discipline and a project without a single study subject, who prominently insist that there must be thousands or even millions of other life support planets out there. And our sci-fi infused imaginations resonate with that notion. But such claims are based on the idea that all that is required for life is the possibility of liquid water. That requirement is, in reality, just one of more than 150 such exquisitely designed parameters identified to date as necessary for making life on Earth possible. Let me explain another set of such finely tuned parameters. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2 that the physical makeup of both humans and all other living things includes the same elements that make up the Earth itself. Today, we know that besides hydrogen, which formed very early after the creation event, almost all of the many other elements required for life were formed by God at the cores of stars as lighter elements fused to form heavier ones. These, in turn, became available for future fusion in another generation of stars through the death and fiery explosion of those first-generation stars. And the presence of all the life-essential elements on Earth is only possible because our remarkable Sun is a third-generation star. We are made of the dust of the Earth, but that Earth dust, in turn, was once stardust. And so, the many designed aspects of our planet and solar system include such things as the age and timing of the birth of our Sun and its planets, 
as well as our proximity to just the right number and timing of supernova events in which the life essential elements became available for forming the unique planet on which we live. In his commentary on Psalm 147.4, Spurgeon writes, Indeed, God gives to each star its appropriate title because he knows its constitution and nature. Vast as these stars are, they are perfectly obedient to his bidding. One of the things I really hope I will have accomplished this morning is to help your minds and imaginations grasp the bigness of God by understanding this truth, that he created and knows intimately every star. But let me give you one more example. Besides hydrogen, there is one other life essential element that is not formed by fusion in the center of massive stars. Fluorine is only formed in a very particular and very rare type of star pair known as a white dwarf binary. In a white dwarf binary, a larger companion star orbits closely enough to a white dwarf that the larger star loses material to the white dwarf at the surface of which some of this material is converted to fluorine and then released to interstellar space to be incorporated into a future solar system. The proximity to Earth of just the right number of these rare systems is recognized as another of the many characteristics of our location in the universe that are exquisitely designed. The twin scientific discoveries of the beginning of the universe and of the design of the universe for life on Earth provide powerful support for the claims of the Bible, for the existence of God, and for the Christian worldview. So here's the take-home message. The heavens declare the glory of God, as Psalm 19 has it, and this is truer in our day than at any other time in history. We were created to both discover and proclaim that glory. And the message of both Psalm 147 and Isaiah 40 is that no matter how great becomes our understanding of the unimaginable glory, wisdom, and might of our Creator in His forming and governance of the starry heavens, we must always remember that He is at the same time our Redeemer who knows and loves and heals and reconciles each one of us and who is concerned about our present sorrows and fears, however small we may seem in the vastness of creation. Spurgeon concludes his musings on Psalm 147, 3-5 with a spontaneous prayer. Let me close with it now. O Lord, it is good to praise you as ruling the stars, 